you'll join me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we have been making our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. The title of our sermon this morning is Etched on the Heart, and our key words for our worshipers in training are law, heart, and Gentile. You can find the text on page 940 in the Blue ESV Bible if you want to follow along there. Well, C.S. Lewis opened his classic book, Mere Christianity, with these words. He wrote, everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. They say things like this, how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or that's my seat, I was there first. Or leave him alone, he isn't doing you any harm. Or why should you shove in first? Give me a bite of your orange. I gave you a bite of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like this every day. Educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, forget your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard, or that if it does, there is some special excuse. He pretends that there is some reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it or that things were quite different when he was given that bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play, or decent behavior, or morality, or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agreed. And they have. If they had not, they might, of course, fight like animals but they could not quarrel in a human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man is in the wrong, and there would be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are, just as there would be no sense in saying that a footballer has committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. Now, Lewis's point here is a brilliant point. And that is that we really have no claim to what is right and to what is wrong without recognizing an objective standard by which we can make such claims. Think of all the ways each day in which we consider what is moral and what is not. Think of all of the ways each day in which we hear what is moral and what is not. Think of all the ways each day that we talk about what is moral and what is not, either directly or implied. And I think what what Lewis does here perfectly identifies where we see this most readily. When there is quarreling, because every disagreement revolves around this fact. Someone is right and someone is wrong, or both people are wrong, but one thing has to be true. 
Determining what is right and what is wrong requires that we have a standard. And that standard must be objective so that we can compare what is done or what is said to that standard to determine if it is right or if it is wrong. Now think of all of our quarrels in life. Some of them are very mundane. Maybe a wife criticizing her husband for not speaking more kindly to his friends. I've never heard that one before. (laughs) Or a child complaining, it's not fair when different amounts of ice cream and cake are handed out at a birthday party. Other arguments maybe take on a larger significance. Think on the global scale and international affairs. Maybe some argue that powerful nations have a moral obligation to protect smaller, lesser nations, even if that requires military force. Others say to be aggressive in the use of military and economic force that threatens to squander one's moral authority. Think of the moral questions in the world of medicine. Some will argue the necessity for research on human embryonic stem cells. Others argue that such research violates the sanctity of human life. Others posit that the potential to alleviate human suffering constitutes an ethical mandate to proceed. Now notice, no matter what the question is, whether it is small and seemingly insignificant, or whether it is great, there is an appeal by every party to a standard. And quite often, that standard is unstated. This standard, of course, we understand as Christians, is the moral law of God. More specifically, we find that in the Ten Commandments. Now, pay attention as you, as you think about disagreements, as you think about quarrels in your own life, you'll find an argument that is for or against what the Ten Commandments lay out, even when the individual making those arguments are not thinking specifically about God's law, or even if people claim that they hate God's law. There simply is no conversation that can take place where a disagreement It is not dealing with the Ten Commandments. What is being debated is whether one action or the other is a closer approximation to the demands of God's moral law. So what is going on? What has happened that that is the case in all of our quarreling? This is where Paul brings us in the text this morning. To answer this question, this concept of right and wrong appears to be a universal truth, a universal issue amongst all of mankind. It appears that this question of right and wrong is an inescapable question. And inescapable questions all revolve around a standard of morality that often goes unmentioned. And it seems like such a simple concept, doesn't it? So often parents will say things like, my child may not be perfect, you're right. But she knows the difference between right and wrong. Or you'll you'll hear a mother being interviewed on the news. Her now serial killer son is in prison. I don't know what happened. He was such a good kid, and he knows the difference between right and wrong. Really? 
then what's the deal? How did that standard get there in the first place? What invisible standard does the world appeal to when they determine that one thing is right and one thing is wrong? Why would anyone question whether or not the woman's serial killer son is good or bad? Whether or not he has done the right thing or the wrong thing? Whether or not he has made a good decision or a bad decision? Why is a civil law in the legal code that we should not murder people any more than a civil law that says every man everywhere should stand his ground in every situation and he should murder at will. What's the difference? Why do we have this sense that one of those things is good and right and the other is bad and evil? What compels us to appeal to this sense of right and wrong? Well, Paul's going to show us. And we see when it's all said and done that nobody can succeed at being a relativist. All of us, whether we want to be or not, whether we admit it or not, whether we think we are or not, every one of us is an absolutist. All of us know the difference between right and wrong, even if we don't do what's right and even if we love what is wrong. So how do we get there? Let's look beginning in verse 12 of Romans chapter 2. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, thus far as we have made our way through the first few arguments in Paul's letter to the Romans, we've seen this progression, we've watched this building momentum of his argument, this argument that is being stacked up again and again and again as Paul has shown us that mankind is unrighteous, that mankind is ungodly, that mankind is regularly and willingly suppressing the truth of God in that unrighteousness. And so when the judgment of God is revealed from heaven against all of our ungodliness and unrighteousness, Paul has reminded us time and time again, we are without excuse. And so his argument has been building and building and building like snow falling on a mountain that will eventually give way to an avalanche because the weight will be so much that it can no longer hold. We will be aware of the just penalty of our sin. And when it, when it all comes crashing down, nobody will be able to say, I didn't know. And at the heart of the issue is what Paul gets to today, namely how it is that we will know and how it is that we do know that we are guilty. What is it that compels a person who does not love God, who does not care about Christ, to still say, I'm not perfect based on what? 
as we've compared ourselves to all of Paul's descriptions of mankind, not one of us has been able to walk away and say, I'm doing fine. I'm good. But we already knew that. How did we come to know that? Also, what do we do with these claims of relativism? What do we do with those who say there is no God or who will simultaneously claim that something is good and right or bad and wrong? So let's see what Paul argues this morning. The first thing we see in verses 12 and 13 is that doers of the law will be justified. As we've gotten into chapter 2, Paul has made several statements that seem quite surprising at first, but when we start to break down exactly what he means, we realize that what may have seemed to contradict what he writes elsewhere is actually just another way of saying the same thing. It's profound, all of the ways that Paul is able to write in his letters and, and to, to show the, the multifaceted aspects of the gospel. And he continues to communicate the law and the gospel and the necessity of the law and the gospel. He does so throughout all of his letters. And so here's a statement that seems to be quite surprising, given what we know to be true about the gospel and about our salvation. But the argument, of course, as Paul lays it out, is brilliant. He's an expert at heading off objections to his line of reasoning. And so here you can hear the underlying claim. It's as if Paul is saying, oh, you don't know the law? You've never heard it before? You've never read it before? No problem. No problem at all. You, you don't accept the moral law of God. You don't accept the Ten Commandments as your standard of belief. That's fine. That's not a problem. That's what Paul is saying here. He doesn't get into Twitter debates. He doesn't get into the Facebook comments and have a debate online. He's really simple. He's saying, that's not your standard? You don't know the standard? You don't accept that standard? No worries. No problem at all. God will not judge you according to this standard that you don't accept. And at this point, you can almost imagine this person that Paul is writing to sort of sits back and throws their feet on the desk and says, good, then we're done here. But then Paul goes right back and he says, well, wait a second though. There, there's still something here we need to talk about. If you do not accept what the Bible says about the moral standard for all of mankind, that's fine, I guess. But the standard of judgment that God's going to use is your own, your own moral standard. You will be judged based on the moral standards you have set and you have accepted and you have embraced that you want others to hold on to. And here's the deal. Look at, look at how he gets after it. This is so brilliant. He says, you will perish you don't accept the law, fine. You will perish without the law. On judgment day, whatever moral standard it is that you subscribe to, according to that moral standard, you will be found guilty because you are unable to uphold it, so you will be judged accordingly. How does that work? I think a very helpful illustration uh, that Francis Schaeffer laid out many years ago. He says that if God is not going to judge you by any other standard than your own, 
the standard that you already have, the standard that you already know, that you hold others to, it's like as if you were born and God put an invisible recording device around your neck. You can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't feel it, you don't know it's there, and nobody else does either. And it doesn't record everything. All it records is what you say to others about what they should do or how they should be and how they should live. So anytime you tell someone you ought to live like this or you should do that, it's picking up your moral standard. Then what? Then on Judgment Day, the day you didn't expect was ever going to happen in your lifetime, on that day you were shocked that God takes that recording device off and He lays it before you and He pushes play. And God says, listen, I am infinitely fair. I am infinitely just. I am only going to judge you according to your own standards. Not mine, but yours. And then he takes that off, he pushes play from the beginning, and you hear your moral standard. So let me ask you, do you want to be judged by the standard of your making, the standard that you hold others to in your mind and in your heart and in your own words? This is what Paul is getting at. There is not a person living on this earth or in the history of the world who would be able to stand and pass that kind of judgment on Judgment Day. Not one. No one has lived up to the standard that they try to hold others to. But notice, he also emphasizes what we already know. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So you know the law of God? you accept the law of God, you will be judged by the law of God. Remember in chapter 2, Paul's really going after here, very specifically, he's going after the Jews and their self-righteous attitude toward the sin of the Gentiles that they thought he was laying out in chapter 1. And we considered before, remember how Jesus was always going to the Pharisees, and he would say, what does the law say? Are you doing those things? Great, you are. Now, by the way, Here's the standard, not just that you do them in an outward action, but you also fulfill the spirit of the law in your heart. Oh, well, that really changes everything, doesn't it? You've honored the Lord's Day by coming to church each and every week and refraining from your work. Excellent. Do you constantly and without fail set the Lord on your heart and your thoughts without the encroaching cares and concerns of the world for the entire day? You haven't murdered anybody? That is fantastic. Have you ever been unrighteously angry? You haven't committed adultery? Wonderful. Have you ever lusted? Being a doer of the law is not just about outward conformity. That's the easy part. Being a law is all about the heart. It's about whether or not the spirit of the law is fulfilled in your heart while we so often focus only on our self-righteous attempts at outward conformity. And so Paul is saying, yes, Jews, God will also judge the Gentiles who do not have the law or do not accept the law. You've got them there, but don't forget, He will judge you as well. Christians sure do spend a lot of time and effort looking at the sins of the world and exposing them for what they are, and that's not always bad or wrong, but do we spend just as much effort exposing the wickedness that resides in our very own hearts, our own intentions, 
our own failure to uphold the standard of morality that we seek to impose on others. You may hear and know the law, but do you do the law? For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So you see, God is remarkably fair. He is infinite. He is impartial. He is perfect in every way. Do you want what is fair? Then be a perfect doer of the law, and you'll be fine. Your standard of others, or God's standard of you, and you will be justified. But when it comes to a personal standard, when it comes to a standard of our own making, there's something really revealing about what Paul shows us in our second point this morning. The standard of an individual's own making is remarkably alike that of the law of God. Why? Well, Paul shows us in verses 14 and 15 that the law of God is written on all of our hearts. Look again at verse 14. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, remember again the flow of Paul's argument. We saw last time in verse 11 that Paul identified that God is one who shows no partiality, and particularly as it comes to, uh, to the judgment of God and the gospel. God is completely and totally 100% impartial. And, and so Paul knows the question will come, and the question often does come, and you've likely heard it before. What about the man? What about the woman? What about the child who never hears the gospel? What could, what could ever happen that they would have hope? And Paul addresses this partly in chapter 1. He goes, on, he goes on more directly here in chapter 2. How can God be an impartial judge, judging all of mankind according to their deeds, if the Jew had the law but the Gentile did not? How is that possible? And, and Paul writes in verse 14, they are a law to themselves. And then in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts and their conscience also bears witness to it. In other words, the evidence for what is going on is, is present in the moral behavior of all kinds of people all over the world showing that they have a true sense of their moral obligations and their conscience confirms it. Paul is teaching us something fundamental about our human nature. This is what it means to be a human being. To have the law of God written on our hearts is to be human. Re remember, we saw this back in chapter 1. Paul showed us that whether we admit it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, all men everywhere know God, and we know God profoundly because God has revealed Himself to us in nature. And we saw other places in Scripture that point us to that very reality. 
And so the response is that we suppress the truth of God in our ungodliness and our unrighteousness. We worship the creature rather than the Creator, and we seek to live our lives without restraint instead of acknowledging the goodness and kindness of God in commanding what is best for us, that we might and joy of the gospel. So all men, all women, all children everywhere are accountable to God, and we will be without excuse on the day of judgment. That's Paul's argument. All Jews, all Gentiles, all accountable to God, all guilty before God under the power of sin. The Swedish theologian Anders Nigren writes, the, the heathen's conscience stands as an objective witness, showing that he actually knew what he did wrong. God's judgment is, is so perfect that He takes into account one's moral perception in rendering judgment. No one measures up to God's standard, but as we've already considered, no one measures up to their own standard. No one will ever be able to, to rise up before God and declare that He is being unfair to them. Now, let's be clear. Paul chooses his words very carefully here. He is saying that the Gentiles who do not have the law, in fact, keep the law. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that they do things that are required by the law. They display what we could call, uh, we do call civic righteousness. In other words, they have enough moral uh, a moral sense to guide them, to live a civil life. And so frequently, that civil moral life they're living mirrors God's moral law. They don't obey the whole law of God, of course, but they, and they also don't love God with all of their hearts and all their minds and all of their souls and all of their strength. So where does that come from? This partial obedience to God's law reveals that there is a certain sense in which the law is written on every person's heart. The cold reality is that the majority of people living and that have lived in this world know nothing about what the Bible says whatsoever. And yet, those people, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, no matter how much little exposure they've had to the Scriptures, no matter how little influence they've had of Western civilization and Christian roots of civilization, they will still respond favorably to much of what we find in the moral law of God in terms of how they want their own society to function. Why? Because of their conscience. Because of their heart. Because Every society needs an objective standard to operate, and God gives that to them on their heart whether they recognize it or not. And so there's a sense in which no one is really a relativist. And I know that if you're here this morning and you're not a believer and those words don't sit well with you probably, let me, let me explain. I'll give you an example. Quite a few years ago in a uh, a publication is called The Chronicle of Higher Education. There was this fascinating article. This woman was a cultural anthropologist at Northeastern University. She was very well respected as an academic. She was studying various African societies and specifically studying women's oppression in those societies. 
There was polygamy, there was female genital mutilation, there were all sorts of different forms of abuse and oppression that were taking place among the women. And inflicted, all of this was inflicted by the men within their society. She was a cultural anthropologist, and going into her research, she had this idea that there is such a thing as moral feelings, but not moral obligation. At best, she would have called herself a skeptic, entirely secular in her life. Her understanding was that if you have a moral feeling, it comes either because your culture has constructed that feeling in you, or because of biology and some genetic disposition to that feeling. Now, she was in Africa conducting her research. She wasn't welcomed with open arms. She was getting a lot of pushback. People were saying to her, don't bring your white, Western, individualistic human rights to us here. We don't think, we don't act in the same way, so who do you think you are bringing your culture's values to us and telling us what's right and what's wrong? What's right for us is what we have always done in the way that we have done it. Now, this, this researcher was furious because she realized that there really is no response that she can accurately provide. She had no basis whatsoever to respond because she had no basis for moral obligation. She could say, I have a subjective feeling that something is wrong, but I do not have an objective basis to say that something is actually universally a standard that you must be held to. Now, of course, you all hear that and think, that's absurd. Of course there's an objective moral standard. Philosophers have sought to find this moral standard since the beginning of time, and we know that it's written for us in the Scriptures. But she had already denied objectivity. She had already said that's not a thing, that's not possible. So here's how she ends her article, all of her great academic research, and she writes this. In the end, I unavoidably believe that equal rights for women is universally good and true, even though I have no basis for it, so I'm going to work for the equal rights of women anyway. What a strong stand she took. Now listen, I wish I could do all my academic work like that. <laughs> None of this really means anything in the end, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's an easy way out, isn't it? But what else is she going to say? She is really, really close to saying what Paul actually writes here, but she won't go there. But here's the reality. Why did she think that polygamy was wrong? Because God's law says that you must not commit adultery. And that law is written on her heart just like it's written on my heart, just like it's written on your heart. She is really, really close. She knows, and you know, and I know, and everybody knows. It's true, and there are things that are universally true, things that are universally right, things that are universally wrong, and we know that because God's law is on our hearts. But here's the big question. If your premise is that there is no God, and therefore no moral obligation leads you to a conclusion you know isn't true which is that there's really nothing wrong with oppressing women in Africa, why not change your premise? So you see, it's, it's impossible to really succeed at being a relativist. You will just continue to have, as Paul writes, conflicting thoughts. 
You know what's right. You know what's wrong. Your conscience will always be at war within you. You will seek to suppress the truth. You will seek to find ways to convince yourself that what you are doing and thinking and believing is okay because objectivity is not a thing. But it's always fascinating to me that the ones who make the absolutist moral claims are the ones who say that nothing is morally absolute. And so often, the first in line to tell us that Christians are wrong are the ones who are absolutely sure about that. Go figure. But here's the reality that we must reckon with, whether we want to or not. Our final point that Paul shows us in verse 16 this morning. God will judge your secrets. See verse 16, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul gets into a new element in what he's going to be teaching now, and he shows us that not only will there be a final judgment, and not only will that judgment be on the impartial basis of God's law, but the judgment will be through Jesus Christ. So, theologically, we see that that Jesus will serve as the judge of all mankind, and that is in keeping with the Old Testament portrait of the Son of Man who is established by God to be the judge of all the earth. And Paul is addressing this by pointing to that day when God will judge the secrets of men. He, of course, does not mean just men, but all of mankind. And here's what Paul is after. I, myself, may not know you as well as I think I know you, or I may not know you at all. I know all of you maybe to varying degrees. Some of you I've never even talked to before. To others, I've known you for most or all of your life. But here's something I know about you that Paul is making plain, and it's something none of us really want to talk about. There are skeletons in all of our closets. We all have secrets that we want to keep in the closet to conceal from the scrutiny of other people. In fact, there's probably something that's coming into your mind right now as I say that, and you're thinking about that, and you're thinking, there is no way that anyone will ever hear about that from my lips ever. I would rather die. And it's something you've tried your whole life to forget about. It's something you try not to think about. And it's there because it's part of your life. And you've gone through the shame. You've gone through the grief. You've gone through the sadness over it. And now it's tucked away in the back of the closet, but you don't want it to come out at all. And here's what Paul is saying. That thing, whatever it is, you can hide it from me You can hide it from your spouse. You can hide it from your children and your friends and your neighbors. Maybe nobody on this earth knows about it other than you and what it is, but God knows. And your judgment will include that thing or those things, whatever they are, whatever the secrets are that you want to keep hidden. They will come out before the throne of God. So what do we do? That doesn't sound very hopeful, does it? And on its own, it's not. But I want to point out something else that Paul writes in verse 16. Notice he says, according to my gospel. According to my gospel. What does he mean by that? Yes, of course, he means that the law is present. We know the law. It has been revealed to us 
in nature. It has been revealed to us on stone. It has been revealed to us in the Word of God. And everyone everywhere can hear and know that they do not stand up to the law. God's standard is that we fulfill the law perfectly. And if we do not fulfill the law perfectly, then we are condemned already. The Bible also tells us that we are conceived in sin. So prior to you ever even having the capacity on your own to have a rational, moral thought, you were in sin and therefore already condemned in the womb. So what do we do with that? Well, the hope that Paul delivers is that all of this is according to his gospel, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to our gospel, to the gospel that belongs to the people of God. That knowing that we would be unable to fulfill His perfect standard, that God made a way in His perfect Son. That the Lord Jesus Christ could do everything that we could not. That the standard that Christ set for everyone else was a standard that He lived up to to perfection. That the standard that God has set forward in His law is a standard fulfilled by Christ. And not only the moral law, but the civil law, the ceremonial law, all fulfilled by Christ perfectly. Conceived in perfection, life of perfection, death of a sinner. That's what Christ did for us. And so you see, we come to texts like this and we're, we're left broken and, and beaten down and plowed under because God's Word has revealed to us once again that we are unable to do what God requires of us, that we on our own might stand before Him free of condemnation, free of judgment. The idea that I'm a good person even though I'm not perfect will not stand on the judgment day. But what will stand on the day of judgment is the truth revealed to us in the gospel. That we would come before Christ as broken sinners, knowing that we are guilty, to say, I have nothing to offer. I have no righteousness of my own. Everything that I have attempted to fulfill on my own is to you, O God, as filthy rags. But Christ, but Christ has lived a perfect life in my place, fulfilling the standard of your law. But Christ has died death in my place that I deserved, that I need not die that death myself. That Christ has been raised from the dead to conquer Satan, to conquer death, to conquer the bondage of sin that I too may be raised from the dead to dwell with Him in perfection forever and ever. And so by faith alone, we can come to Christ. And He bids us to come to Him, that we not look at a text like this and walk away from it completely broken and annihilated, but rather that we read a text like this and say, yes, that is me. Yes, that is who I am. Yes, my secrets will be judged by God, but because I have faith in Christ, my secrets will be judged by God on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Christ and not on the basis of what I have done and not done. 
I want to live upon the righteousness of Christ because my own righteousness pales, pales in comparison. It's not even worth mentioning. today and you don't know Christ, you don't have faith in Christ, Jesus bids you, come to me, all who labor, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me by faith. Put your trust in me that my life is sufficient for you, that my death is sufficient for you, that my resurrection has secured an eternal life for you by faith. Will you come to Christ? He invites you to do so. Believer, He continually invites us to continue to stand upon His righteousness. You see, this is not a call that we would try harder, that we would work harder to do better, that we could try to obtain some kind of moral perfection in this life. It's not going to happen. It is a call to holiness, it is a call to godliness, it is a call to a righteous life, but it is not a call to say that one day you will try hard enough and you will actually accomplish what God has required. You can't. It is a call, it is a reminder that we must continue to trust in the same Christ who saved us, in the same Christ who will judge us, in the same Christ who paid the penalty of that judgment. It is the greatest gift that the world has ever known. It is free, and it is offered to all of us that we might rest in Him today. Do you know Christ? Do you trust Christ? Do you love Christ?